At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? today, so take the Bible that's in the chair in front of you, or, or take out your device, or open up your own Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I'm going to read that text here in just a moment, and then we'll pray. Uh, so we've been going through this series called Church, Why Bother? And I hope you have been blessed by it as you've been equipped to really help answer the question that maybe you're asking in your own heart or your neighbors are asking or, or your coworkers are asking, which is, church, why go? Why should I go to church? And we see all the things that are happening culturally. And, and what we have been doing through this series is being equipped to really answer that question in our own heart so that when Saturday comes and we're questioning about, oh, should I, should I go ahead and get up early? Should I, should I make the effort to go to church uh, we are equipped to be able to answer in our own hearts, yes. Yes, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to church in the morning. Or as you're talking through uh, the week and you're having interactions with coworkers or, or neighbors and, and you hear that God might be working in their hearts spiritually, you can give them a good reason to understand why they should engage in the local church, why they should bother with church, with all that's good, it's bad, and it's ugly, God has created the church to be instrumental in our own lives, but also to spread the gospel. And so we want to hold fast to those truths that we've been learning. And as with all of these pastoral epistles, it's very easy to read them and to say, hey, these are the expectations that I should have for the church leaders, right? For the elders, for the pastors, for the church staff. But a secondary implication that we have to understand is that the epistles have been written and preserved by God so that we could also, as church members, have a bar to understand how we should live. We shouldn't just place these expectations on our church leaders, but we should also look to see how we can apply them to our own lives. So with that said, um, I love it when the church stands for the reading of God's word. So if you would, please stand, and I'm going to read to you the text and uh, you can feel free to follow along from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the word of God says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. 
No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judge, but the sins of others appear later. So also the good words are conspicuous, and even those that are not able Sorry, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I thank you for the reading of your word. And Lord, I pray that as we look at the text today, we will let it sink into our souls and into our hearts. And Father, may we be transformed not only by the reading of your word, but the teaching of your word, and also the fellowship of the church. To you be the glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, here we are, and uh, where we're going today, just to give you a little bit of a roadmap so that you can anticipate it, uh, we're going to look at the main ideas that godly pastors are a gift to the church. Godly pastors and elders are a gift to the church. We'll look at how we can support our pastors financially, that we should respect our pastors, and that we should select our pastors and elders wisely. You might remember um, a little bit ago, there was a video that went out to all the campuses, and Pastor Chris was uh, being asked a question about uh, what are some of his, his favorite movies. And he came back with a response about uh, Jurassic Park, how he loves Jurassic Park, right? We all love a, a good kind of scary dinosaur movie. And uh, then he also went on to comment about how he likes treasure movies, treasure movies, right? I mean, who doesn't like a good treasure movie? And he went on to talk about, in particular, about Indiana Jones, And we all love Indiana Jones. In fact, we love it so much, they're making another one, right? But one of the things that both of those movies have in common is a good director, right? This is so prevalent in all of our culture. When when somebody does something really well, right, it connects with people, it helps people, it entertains people, and that person becomes kind of iconic. And Steven Spielberg is one of those iconic movie men. But what makes him one of those iconic movie men? It's because he does such a good job at what he does. Now, as we begin to think about the passage that we're looking at today, we understand that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been telling his people, has been telling particularly Timothy, one of his disciples, how it is he should run the church, what it is he should do. How it is he should encourage the church. How it is he should lead them to minister. Do you remember the section about praying and orderly worship? And do you remember the section about elders and deacons and the qualifications? Paul is telling Timothy throughout the whole book, this is how the church should act. This is how the church should be. This is how the church should be led. And Timothy, this is how you should pastor your church. Do these things. Now, as Paul is beginning to wrap up the letter, he wants to understand that the church needs to also understand these things. Now, if you think about a church context, you know, we have a lot of things that go on. But one of the key things that has to happen is the congregation has to have a biblical expectation for their leaders. And so that is what he's doing here. He's saying, Timothy... I want you, and this is probably what happened, right? I want you to be able to read this letter to the church. As was common, as the epistles were being distributed, someone would receive it, typically the pastor, in this case Timothy. Timothy reads it. He reads it to his elders. He reads it then to the whole church. 
And so church, you are the recipients of a letter from Paul to Timothy, to the elders of Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus, to a church here today, Woodside Bible Church. And he comes to this section and he lays out some guidelines for the church to follow, some more guidelines. And the first is we support our pastors financially. Verses 17 and 18, to repeat it, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul has already laid out the qualifications. So when you're looking for a pastor or elder, he's laid out the qualifications for that type of man. But now he's getting into a little bit more detail, trying to bring this whole epistle full circle as we have just one more chapter to go after chapter 5. And he wants the church to know that we should support our pastors financially. Now, seeing as Paul has already given the qualifications, what does he mean there? One of the things he talks about, he says, to be considered worthy of double honor. What does that mean? Well, as you look at the commentators and you look at the experts who have studied this and you look at what pastors have said as they've preached this, uh, it's an example where, uh, quite honestly, it's not quite clear. Imagine that in Scripture, right? Scripture is so clear, but it's, it's, it's specific when it needs to be specific. And then we look at the whole context of the letter and we look at what Paul was doing and it helps bring clarity as we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Well, here's what he does say about double honor. He says, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. Paul is recognizing that the primary responsibility of the church is to preach and teach the word of God. The primary responsibility of your pastors and your elders should be to rightly divide the word of truth. And so the church is sitting there receiving this and they're thinking, well, wait a minute. Well, isn't, isn't, the, isn't the staff supposed to, you know, care for the poor, care for the widows, and, and uh, you know, provide for the needs, and do hospital visits, and do house visits, and do <coughs> calls, and to pray, and to do all? Yes. Yes. But Paul specifically notes to the church that you are to honor your pastors and your elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. One of the things that is happening here is Paul is illustrating this from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, where literally the ox, when done with the work, was able to graze the field. And so you go back to Agrigarian Israel, and you can imagine this. There was an ox, and they were plowing the field, and, and they weren't supposed to muzzle the ox, so to say, because after they were done with the job, the ox could then go through the field and be fed so that it could be strong for its next task. But what happens also is Paul closes this and he says the laborer is deserving of his wages. Well, once again, what exactly does this mean? Because you might be sitting there thinking, well, hang on a minute here. Paul, didn't you, didn't you often refuse wages from the churches that you went to minister to? And the answer is yes, that's what he did. We know Paul is a tent maker, right? Paul would be, in today's sense, a bivocational pastor. Someone who went to a city and and he would mend and he would make tents and he would do different things for a living so as to not be a burden on the churches that he was ministering to. But he said, I am not necessarily the example. 
I'm a example, but not necessarily the example. And so churches, when you're able to provide for your pastors, you should do so, and you should do so generously. Not just financially, but also spiritually and emotionally. Recognize the task that they have and the work that they have to do and give them double honor. Do not muzzle the ox and recognize that a laborer is deserving of his wages. We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and follow along with me in this. Verses 3 through 12. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. And what's Paul doing here, first of all? He's defending his apostolic ministry. Because there were those who were critical of him. Imagine that. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers in Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses. And here it is again. We're seeing the same passage quoted twice by Paul. We should take note of that. Because that also means the same passage is at least three times in the Bible preserved by the Holy Spirit. For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, it was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much that we reap a material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with everything, anything, rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What is Paul talking about there? He's talking about the support received from the church at Corinth. And there were those in Corinth who said, well, wait a minute, Paul. We don't know that we should pay you for this work. And Paul goes on to contend with that passage there. Look, labor is worthy of his wages. And we are contending for the gospel. We're sharing the gospel. We're encouraging the church. We should and we are deserving of the gifts and the wages that you will give to us. But then Paul doubles down and he says, but look, since it's a problem, I'm not going to take it. Because the gospel is primary. One of the things that I want to say, just as a pastor of Woodside Bible Church, is I want to say thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the generosity that you give to the church so that people like myself and people like Joel and Jacob and, and others who are paid staff here at the church can minister and we can do so and, and provide for our families to some degree. And we can have the privilege of, of having nice buildings to work from and resources to minister from. Like it is truly, truly a blessing. And we want you to understand that we don't take a passage like this lightly. And for us on this side, so to say, of the church, we understand and we shouldn't take lightly what Paul says, the laborer is deserving of his wages. We should be working hard. We should be ministering hard. We should be equipping hard. We should be training hard. And we thank you for the grace and the direction that you give us and the financial support. But I also want to encourage you, it's just not financial support. If you think your support ends at financial support, you're wrong. 
We need your prayer support. One of the things that I was so encouraged by at my previous church, and don't get me wrong, I'm encouraged here at Woodside too. I'm just using an example here. At my previous church, October, they did a great job with Pastor Appreciation Month. And I actually came to the church in November. And Pastor Appreciation Month was the month before, in October. And my first Sunday there, they were recognizing the ministerial staff for Pastor Appreciation. Now, coming into that church in 2008, I had no expectation. I mean, I was the new guy on the street. I'd gone through the interview process. They recognized God had called me to the church to minister. But they called me up on stage. And they gave me and my family, they gave us gifts like we had been there for 10 years. But one of the most precious things that they did that year and every year that I was there, and I'm sure they're continuing the tradition even to today, is they had organized the people in the church to pray for my family and myself. And not only did they say we're going to do this, but they gave me the schedule so that I would know who was praying when they were praying. And I'll tell you what, that was so much more precious than the gift cards. Did we enjoy the gift cards? Absolutely. Did the kids enjoy the gift cards to the donut shop? Absolutely. But to have and to know that the church was, was spending probably what was double their efforts praying for us was huge. So I want to thank you for that, and I want to encourage you in that as you move forward in your season of ministry. We should provide for our pastors financially. Well, next, we need to respect our pastors. Verses 19 and 20 say this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Wow. Could you imagine Timothy reading this? You're like, wait a minute, Paul, did you really just write this? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Yes, he did. Because not only are pastors supposed to be provided for financially, but you are supposed to hold them accountable. But part of that accountability comes with respect. We need to respect our pastors. Look at what Paul is doing here. He says to Timothy, notice he transitions from from how it is we should support our pastors And let's not be um, naive here. This is a continued way of supporting your pastors and your elders is to respect them and to hold them accountable. But what does he say? He gives instructions. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why was he saying this? Well, Paul had experience in this, right? I mean, after all, you look at the church at Corinth, and, and Paul, especially 2 Corinthians, had to defend his apostolic ministry. And he had people coming out against him and questioning his motives and questioning him as a person and questioning what he was doing and how he was doing it. And so Paul knew the attacks that would come. And why do attacks come to pastors and elders within churches? Why do the attacks come? Certainly there's a spiritual element to that, right? Just like every Christian, there's a spiritual element to the attacks that come to your pastors and elders. But notice also that teaching can be upsetting. Has anybody ever heard a passage preached and you left upset? 
I'm not going to ask for hands. But when we are properly teaching the Word of God, it upsets people. Now, why is that? Because it also greatly encourages people. But look at Paul's ministry, right? You open up 1 Corinthians and you begin to see right away, right away, Paul dives in, I'm thankful for you, but you've got some major sin going on in your church. Deal with it is basically what he says. Do you think that was a popular message? To some, absolutely. Man, Paul, you're right. We need to deal with this and we've been trying to deal with this. But to others, oh, who is Paul? Who's this guy? What kind of authority does he have? Why should we listen to him? We're good. And so when you preach and teach the word of God, what happens is the enemy can use that to bring accusations against a pastor or elder. And in the sinful aspect, it can bring false accusations. You see, spiritual truth is powerful Teaching can upset people. Addressing sin can become ugly within the context of the church. But notice what Paul did not say. He did not say accusations should not be considered. Your pastors and elders are not immune to what goes on in the world. Your pastors and elders are not perfect people. We all know that. But what Paul does say is when accusations come, he says, church, I don't want you to ignore them, but I want you to take them prayerfully and seriously, and this is how you should do it. Don't even consider a charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul, of course, being trained in the, Judaic, in the, in the Jewish law, understood this, and he's probably going back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with the offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So what is Paul doing again? He's using Scripture. He's using Scripture to define Scripture, to teach Scripture, so the church knows how to act. You see the standard that is being laid out here. But also Paul probably has in mind the teachings of Jesus. He would have probably have heard of, te- of the teaching of Jesus from like Matthew chapter 18, where he gives the instructions on how sin is supposed to be dealt with within the church. When a person is sinning, go to that person in private. If it continues and there's no repentance, bring a person with you. Now you have two witnesses. And what happens with those two witnesses? If there continues to be a failure to repent, then you bring it before the whole church. Paul understands the way the church is supposed to work and minister within this context. And keep in mind, as great a love as he has for pastors and elders within the church, his greater love is for the church. And that should be true of all of us. All of us. As much as you love your pastors and your elders, your greater love should be for the good of the church. And Paul highlights that here by saying, don't just dismiss the charges. But if there are charges of sin brought against a pastor and an elder, then you need to take these and you need to begin working them through this biblical order of how you should deal with them. And one of the first things that you should consider is, is this witnessed by two or three people? <coughs> Excuse me. But to respect our pastors, what does it mean? 
It means to protect the office from false accusations. It means to hold the leaders biblically accountable. And then it's interesting, he says in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Wow, that sounds pretty harsh. It sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Once again, Paul's first love, of course, is Jesus. And his immense love for the church, he wants to protect it. And he understands one of the greatest ways that we can protect the church is not only preaching the God of word, but holding people accountable when they sin. One of the greatest problems within the modern day church or within the church ever since the beginning of it in the New Testament times has been when a church is permissive of the sin of its leaders. The gospel is tarnished. The church is tarnished. The reputation of Jesus is tarnished. And the world looks at that and they see it. They're not dumb. And they look at it and they say, why? Why would I bother with church if that's the way it is? But we need to respect our pastors and we need to understand the seriousness of this. You notice scripture is full, full of difficult stories where we go through it and we're like, wow, that's really in there? Well, that doesn't really build up the people of God on first reading, but then we understand it does. One example is I'm reading with my son through Leviticus. I can tell you more details later. It sounds odd, but it's actually really good. But we came to Leviticus 10 this week. In Leviticus 10, all the orders of the priest have been given. Aaron and his family are now in the priesthood. And they're administering the, the way in which the worship was to, to be ordered. They're taking in sacrifices. They're presenting them to God. Aaron is standing at the altar of God. And then in chapter 10, there's two people who come up in Scripture. And it says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They did what God hadn't commanded. And what happened was God struck them dead. Because God cares about his name. He cares about his reputation. And now what does something like that do? It puts fear into the people. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so Paul, in this passage, as he continues, he says, look, we need to respect our pastors, and this is one of the ways that we can do it. Hold them accountable in a biblical, godly way. And I also want to say this very clearly, very clearly. This is not a, I gotcha passage. We don't need people in the church who are looking for the pastors or elders to make the slightest misstep. We do not need that. Paul is not saying, hey, appoint someone in the church to watch, to watch for when the pastors and the elders mess up. He's not saying that. That's not encouragement. That's not respect. That's very, very discouraging. And it bears a heavy burden on our souls if we have people like that. So please don't be like that. I think of it this way, in a simple way. You know, this week, of course, we had the ice, right? We had the ice. And I have a 17-year-old daughter who, just like all 17-year-olds, thinks they're immune to the dangers of the world. 
How many of us have been there, right? Every hand should go up. When we were 17, we thought we were immune to the dangers of the world. Well, the roads had cleared up just enough where I already had told her, no, you're not going anywhere now. But as the roads had cleared up and the salt trucks had been out and, and things were starting to get better, she wanted to go out. Okay, it's a snow day and you can go and you can, it's actually an ice day, right? You can go out and, and you can do some things that you want to. But we're out there at the car and there we are like getting the ice off the car. And obviously the windshield right? You need the windshield. Well, then I kind of stop and I say, okay, Haley, what's, what else is wrong with the car? Why is it not ready to go? She didn't really understand, and, and that's fine. That's why we teach these things, right? I said, look at your windshield wipers. They're still frozen, and they can't move. And so I said, we need to clear those off before you can, you can leave. Well, why do I need? I don't need my windshield wipers. It's not snowing or raining. I said, well, but the roads are wet, and your windshield can still get dirty. I said, they need to move before you go. Okay, so we did that. and I said, okay, what else needs to happen? And she looked, and she really didn't know, which is fine once again. And, and I said, your, your headlights still have a lot of ice on them. We need to clear out the ice so that you can go. But my point is this. What am I doing? I'm encouraging her to go out, but I'm encouraging her to do it in a very safe way. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, just like, just like teenage drivers need to learn to respect the elements, so we as a church need to learn to respect our pastors. And sometimes one of the ways, and Paul sees this, Paul is saying to the church, this is how I want you to care for and to respect your pastors. And pastors and elders, I want you to know that this is important and I'm giving you a warning to protect yourself. We need to respect our pastors and do it in love. Next, we need to select our pastors wisely. <coughs> Excuse me. He goes on to say, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Every pastor and elder in every church is looking for that next great ministry leader. I had a ministry meeting yesterday and I told them, I said, look, my job is to not do your ministry, although I will be engaged in that and there will be times where I will do this. But my job, scripturally speaking, is to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And you can imagine how pastors, all of you have a ministry idea, and that is fabulous. And we're looking for that next ministry idea that will just really connect the gospel to the people. But here's what happens, and here's the temptation, that we are too haste in appointing a person to a place of leadership. And it's the same for ministry, and it's the same for a church that is looking for pastors and elders. Oh, I've got this spot open, and the money's been there, and the church needs it, and Oh man, we've got this great uh, pool of applicants here. And the temptation is to just, in an expedient way, to make it happen. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, slow things down. Let God lead and let Jesus, let Jesus be the determiner and who these things are. That's why Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. 
An examination process needs to take place. A church should take its time to pray and to select its pastors and elders. A church should not put in people into a position just because they meet the qualifications that are given earlier in the chapter. In the book, we understand that there has to be more to this process. And this is what Paul is getting at. And he goes on to explain. He says, look, the sins of some people are are obvious. The sins of some people are obvious, and it's an automatic disqualifier. But also what we have to understand is that sometimes these things aren't seen until there's an examination process. But the opposite of that is true. Some of you could be doing amazing ministry, and we don't know about it because you're so secretive about it. But we want to know, and we want to celebrate, and we want to consider if this is something else the church should take part in. I love prayer meetings. And one of the great things about prayer meetings is you come together and the church prays together and we celebrate together. But then we have that point of where we take praises from those who are present. And, and there has to be this, this careful balance here where God is working in your life. I understand you should be humble about it. I understand you're not looking for the spotlight. But I want you to also understand when God is working in your life, that can be a massive encouragement to the church. And that can spread like good fire, taking on awesome things that could take place within the life of the church. But Paul says we need to select our pastors wisely. And so use wisdom in that. Use scripture in that. Use prayer in that. Use references in that. What is this person's character like? What is he like at home? What is he like at work? You realize the qualifications earlier in the book talk about what is his reputation among his neighbors? That's huge. Yes, you can actually go to a man's neighbors and say, we're considering this person for leadership in our church. Is he a good neighbor? But Paul lays this out. We need to use wisdom in selecting our pastors. And the question begs, why is that? Every pastor and elder should be seeking to emulate Jesus. Every pastor or elder should be seeking to emulate Jesus. And I will tell you right now, we will fail and we will fail and we will fail time and time again. But Jesus is the standard. The Holy Spirit is driving us towards the sanctification that is required. Just like he is you, your standard is Jesus. Your fuel is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And as we do these things together, and we all seek to become more like Jesus, we think of the words of John chapter 10. And what happens here? In John chapter 10, Jesus, in verse 11 through 18, says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. We do not want pastors or elders who flee when the wolf is around. Why? Because that's not what Jesus did. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own charge. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. When you have good pastors and you have good elders, they're not perfect people, but they're people who are seeking to be like Jesus. And they're people who are seeking to help you become more like Jesus. And just some of the simple ways that you can do that is by supporting them, not only financially, but spiritually. You can respect them. Think through ways that you personally can be led by the Holy Spirit and by Scripture to support your pastors and elders. And then when you have that opportunity to select them, be diligent. Do your homework. Use the scripture as your guide. The Holy Spirit will lead you. And then when you select your pastors and elders, love them well. Because that's what Jesus tries to do to us. As we all seek to love Jesus better, all of these things will become easier. And the church will become stronger. And the question, why bother, will be answered. Let's pray. Father, to you be the glory. We come before you. And we thank you for the ways in which we are to lovingly hold each other accountable. Father, it is a big question, why bother? And I pray that if there's someone here today who's investigating the church, investigating the things of Jesus. I pray what they've heard is the word of God taught. I pray that they understand that a church is not a place of the perfect, but of the imperfect who are made perfect because of Jesus. And it's a process. And it's a process that begins with a relationship with Jesus. And I pray that if there's someone here today who does not know Jesus, May today be the day, may this hour be the hour where they ask questions about the gospel and they understand it and they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus for the remission of their sins. And Father, for those of us who are members of the church, help us rise up to the task that you've laid out for us to really treat our pastors and elders worthy of double honor to respect them by lovingly encouraging them and holding them accountable. And when the opportunity arises, be very particular when we select them. So Father, we come before you and we humbly ask that our hearts will be changed for your glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.